0: From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: It's Thursday, July 14th, 2022. Welcome in here to The Guy Benson Show. I am your host. Guy Benson, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. We always appreciate it. Every weekday between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, also around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. You can also find us at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We encourage you to follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. If you don't know me or you're new to the program, we do appreciate you joining the family. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, where I write every day. I'm a Fox News contributor. I was on TV this morning, America's Newsroom on the News Channel, also with Stuart Varney on Fox Business Network. And then, of course, I host this fine program every day here with all of you. Here's our lineup for today, and we are stacked. Andy McCarthy joins us later this hour. A lot to get to with him on legal matters. Bill Melugin, our colleague at Fox News, who does so much important reporting down at the U.S. southern border on the border crisis that many in the press choose to ignore. He does not. And he has some shocking updates that we have to talk about, plus a story that he's covering out of Los Angeles that we will get to in our middle hour as well. General Jack Keane. Grace is the program. Haven't had him in a while, and we need an update out of Ukraine and a few other foreign policy issues that I am eager to get his take on. General Keene coming up. And then in our final hour, United States Senator Tim Scott, a Republican of South Carolina, one of my favorites personally. He will be here on the news of the day, a lot of which we are going to get to here in just a moment. But that is what the roadmap looks like moving forward. And let's begin, as we did yesterday, with a Fox News alert on the economy and on inflation. Yesterday, it was the Consumer Price Index outpacing even bad expectations on inflation. A lot of the economists and experts who were polled and surveyed thought that the annual growth rate on inflation would be around 8.8%. Well, the actual number was 9.1%. Another 40-year high. And I don't have to tell you that this is happening. You all feel it. You all see it every single day. But that's the number that's attached to it. And I know the White House spin is, oh, well, the gas prices are coming down just a little bit. And so that's not really baked into these new numbers, which aren't really that up to date. Well, they're the newest, freshest numbers that just came out literally yesterday. And I know they spent a lot of time talking about how presidents have no control over gas prices. Just setting aside the agenda on U.S. domestic energy. That I think is highly important. They don't want to talk about that. But then when gas comes down a little bit, they're like, look at what we have done. It's just just so unserious. It's risible. People aren't buying it. And incidentally, I filled up my gas tank today. And it cost me almost 90 dollars. I'm not sure anyone should be boasting or bragging about gas prices that are still floating on the wrong side of 450 a gallon, on average, and a lot higher in many places, including where I am, over five dollars a gallon. So that was all yesterday. And they were trying to ignore the fact that core inflation, which does not count energy or gas, was still massively elevated. Like, they can talk around this all they want. People are feeling and experiencing what they are. To borrow one of the phrases that they love on the left, it is the lived experience of the American people that contradicts this miasma of spin that we're getting from this crowd. And then today, this is the alert part of it, drops another measure, another metric on inflation, Wholesale prices. Via FoxBusiness.com, wholesale prices accelerated again in June as inflation seeps throughout every part of the U.S. economy, squeezing businesses and American households in the form of higher prices for most necessities. The Labor Department said Thursday that its producer price index, PPI, yesterday was CPI, which measures inflation at the wholesale level before it reaches consumers, climbed 11.3% in June from the previous year on a monthly basis, prices grew by 1.1%. So we saw over 1% growth on CPI, same on PPI today. The expectation, the consensus was that the, this particular measure was going to increase by 10.7% annually. It was in fact 11.3%. So another beat in the wrong way. So the monthly estimates were off underscoring just how strong inflationary pressures still are. I saw Nancy Pelosi said she thinks that we're now peaking. So it's going to start coming down so don't worry. Pelosi says so. I'm sure you're reassured. Speaker Pelosi never has to worry about this. Right? The cost of her exorbitantly expensive everything could go up by 40%, 90%, 200% She can afford any of it because she and her husband are multi-millionaires. Most of us, the rest of us in this country, don't have that luxury, and so it bites a lot harder. And the farther down the income scale you get, the harder it bites. It is a tax that's invisible and regressive. And it is just punishing families' bottom lines and their bank accounts. And by the way, the reason that beyond the consumer side, inflation, that, of course, matters a lot that people feel. Well, the wholesale inflation, PPI, that matters as well because it's not just, you know, business owners who have to worry about it. It's consumers because ultimately the rising prices for businesses get, say it with me, passed down to consumers. It is economics 101. I'm no Charles Payne. I'm no Dagan McDowell. I'm no Larry Summers. I'm just a radio host here and a TV commentator with a journalism degree. But I do understand some basic things about how the world world works, and this is one of them, which is why this statistic matters not just to people who run stores or sell goods, but to people all around the country who buy anything ever, which is all of us. So on yesterday's show... We open the Wednesday edition here on the Guy Benson Show by going through over the course of our first hour, this three o'clock Eastern hour, a number of concurrent, in some cases overlapping crises. That can either be pinned fully or partially on the Biden administration, congressional Democrats and progressives at the state and particular, uh, particularly the city level. And those crises are the economic ones that we're talking about, inflation, first and foremost, crime, which we got into at some length, and the border crisis, all three of them. And there's other things as well. Like, that's not the only stuff happening in the country that is uh, concerning, that would motivate people to, for instance, get to the polls with great enthusiasm in November. But those are big ones especially inflation and crime. I think that the border crisis is undersold because a lot of people don't pay as close attention to it as they should and would if the ideological elements and consequences of that were different. If the dynamics politically on a partisan basis were different, we'd be hearing a lot more about it. But the media, for multiple reasons, not terribly eager To continue to scrutinize that issue, even though it is worse than it has ever been at the border. So we will get an update on that front, as I teased earlier from Bill Malugin, coming up a little less than an hour from right now. We will bring you the border crisis latest. We just brought you the inflation crisis latest. And now I want to get to the issue of crime. Because... In that opening hour that I referenced from yesterday, we told you about a story involving Starbucks coffee, one of the most visible food and beverage chains in the world. American-based, founded in Seattle. You all know Starbucks. And the story was that they had announced that they are going to be closing down, shuttering 16 stores around the country. Why? Because the stores were Unsafe to operate due to crime. Unsafe. And I listed off in rapid succession the cities where these closings are occurring. And every single city was a blue city run by Democrats. And almost all of them were in blue states as well. In fact, if memory serves, they were all blue cities in blue states. From... Washington, D.C. and Union Station, that's Starbucks closing, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then a ton in California, Oregon, Washington. There's like four or five in Seattle alone, home base for Starbucks. Because of the physical lack of safety at these store locations. So the CEO... Of Starbucks, who briefly, you might remember, was flirting with a presidential run. He didn't pull the trigger in 2020. His name is Howard Schultz. He gave one of these sort of like virtual group meeting speeches that happen at big companies. And he was addressing internally Starbucks employees. And he was talking about this. And the clip was leaked to a radio host in Seattle, not our friend, Jason Rance. And... He put it out on Twitter. It's about a minute long. Here is Howard Schultz talking about what happened here. And wait to the very end, because there's more news coming, I think, on this exact issue in Cut 26.
3: I don't have to spend too much time on what's going on in the country and how America has become unsafe. Uh, But you all read the press release the last couple of days about the fact that we are beginning to close stores that are not unprofitable. But we're closing stores as a result of the co-creation sessions that we've had, almost 60 now, 25 in the SSC and the rest in the field. And we had one yesterday in San Antonio. But in all of those sessions, uh, it has shocked me that one of the primary concerns that our retail partners have is their own personal safety. And then we heard the stories that go along with it about what happens in our bathrooms. The issue of mental illness, the issues of homelessness, and the issues of crime. And Starbucks is a window into America. We have stores in every community, and we are facing things in which the stores were not built for. And so we're listening to our people and closing stores, and this is just the beginning. There are going to be many more.
2: I mean, this is just the beginning. There will be many more, he says. The 16 stores... That I listed off, and I saw one blue check mark lefty on social media when I tweeted out this story. It was like, "Oh yeah, well, what about all the stores that didn't close?" Yeah, great point. Really solid, sound point. Well, it turns out, based on the CEO's comments there, that there are going to be more Starbucks locations marked for closure because of this crime problem. Just closing down the stores, not because they are unprofitable, as he says. These are profitable busy locations makes the company money but it becomes so dangerous in the community that they cannot continue to put the physical safety of their employees at risk so they are closing down the stores and looking for safer places to open elsewhere 16 were announced yesterday and howard schultz telling his employees it's just the beginning there are going to be more and i thought it was also interesting when he said that Starbucks can offer a window into the country because they are located all, I mean, thousands of locations in every community all over the country, I think it might be telling, revealing, instructive to see which communities and areas Starbucks is leaving and which ones they're not. There are some lessons there, one might imagine. Relatedly, another ubiquitous chain in the United States, 7-Eleven. They are offering a hefty reward in connection to murders that took place in some of their stores in Southern California. Some of their locations now have have curtailed their hours, closing at night because of this violence. You pile that on top of the closures, for example, of Walgreens locations in San Francisco due to mass looting and shoplifting that the local officials won't deal with or prosecute. You can just say it's kind of a mirage and the crime thing is just scaremongering and fear-mongering, and it's a Republican talking point. Look at what's happening. They can spin all they want on inflation, on the border, on crime, all of it. They're not persuading anyone, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't be able to, because they're failing. They're failing. You know it, and I know it. And I speak for myself when I say I cannot wait for November. We've got a break. A lot to get to on this show today. McCarthy, Malugin, Keen, and Scott all ahead. Stay tuned.
0: Fresh conservative talk. Kai Benson show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for tuning in. Fox News Alert. Just checking out on the Dow. It's been a bumpy day today. It's actually recovered quite a lot. It was down big time earlier in the session. Currently, only the Dow, down 118 points, still in the red, but recovering a bit. Right now trading a hair under 30 uh, 30,700. The reason I'm checking in on that is because the markets have been at least to some extent spooked, understandably, by these inflation numbers. Yesterday and today. Because the worse the numbers get on inflation, the tougher these solutions are going to have to be from the Fed as they tighten up. And the likelihood of this soft landing that people keep talking about diminishes. And when you have a harder landing, that's a recession. And the harder the landing, the more difficult and painful the recession is. And so that's something that I'm keeping my eye on, not just at the the current problem, which is inflation, which sounds like it'll be with us for a while, but the next problem, which unfortunately is like part of the antidote here because of how deep the current problem is, that's the likelihood of recession. And Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, Democrat under Barack Obama, he was right on inflation. He's now saying recession is very likely. And in an interview about a month ago, just a reminder, this is what he said looking back in Cut 28. I think when inflation is as high as it is right now and unemployment is as
4: low as it is right now, it's almost always been followed within two years by inflation, by by recession. I look at what's happening in the stock and bond markets. I look at where consumer sentiment is. I think there's certainly a risk of recession in the next year, but I think the optimists were wrong a year ago in saying we'd have no inflation,
2: and I think they're wrong now. And the chief optimist, at least in what he's saying, is the President of the United States and his whole party around him. They were wrong then, Summers thinks they're wrong now, and it's hard to disagree, as difficult as that is. We'll be right back. (laughs)
0: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bill Malugin coming up in the next hour, along with General Jack Keene. U.S. Senator Tim Scott also still to come on the show today. But joining us right now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter, Andy, welcome back. Guy, great to be with you. A lot to get to with you here, Andy. I want to start with the Durham investigation into the origins of the whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax or matter, whatever you want to call it. Durham requesting 30 subpoenas for testimony in an upcoming trial against a source for that infamous Steele dossier, someone named Igor Danchenko. We saw a setback in this Durham probe with one of the lawyers who, at least seemed to me, had lied to the FBI, but a jury in D.C. found him not guilty of that. What's the significance of this Danchenko trial, 30 subpoenas? Is that a surprising number to you? And what's at stake here?
5: It's surprising to me, Guy, that
2: uh, he needed to go to the court for
5: subpoenas. It's just just not the way the practice worked when I was... In the Southern District of New York but it's not at all unusual for uh, prosecutors to issue subpoenas on the eve of trial and you just referred to the uh, Sussman prosecution that Durham had a few months ago I'm sure that his team uh, tried to learn the lessons of that uh, proceeding and is trying to make sure that it has uh, all of its ducks in a row before the trial starts
2: and This trial is for what? What could come out of this? Well, uh, you know,
5: the interesting thing about this guy all along to me has been that the only thing Durham has charged here is lies to the FBI. That's what Danchenko – Danchenko is accused of lying to the FBI, not in the sense that the Steele dossier for which he was supposedly the main source – uh, was itself fraudulent, but about lying to the FBI regarding who his sources were for the Steele dossier. I think that's interesting in the sense that uh, as far as the prosecution is concerned, the Steele dossier could be a tissue of lies or it could be, um, you know, it could have come down from Mount Sinai. It really doesn't make any difference. What, they're, what he's accused of uh, is lying to the Bureau about who he got information from. And again, I think, you know, you run into the same or a similar problem, at least, that I think Durham had in the Sussman case, which is he's taking the position, obviously, that the FBI was the dupe of people who were, uh, you know, trying to run these scams about Trump's connection to Russians, rather than that the uh, FBI was, uh, you know, a willing participant in that venture. I think that's going to be a tough road for him to hoe.
2: Oh, we will keep tabs on that trial as it begins. Meantime, Andy, the January 6th committee on Capitol Hill had another hearing this week, not as explosive as perhaps the previous one was. There were some text messages behind the scenes that got some attention and then a hint at the end or toward the end of that session about at least allegations of potential witness tampering against Donald Trump himself, Just walk us through, if you would, your takeaways from this week's January 6th hearing.
5: Well, the most interesting part of it, Guy, was this insane meeting that went on at the White House on December 18th of 2020, uh, in which there was apparently a near brawl between um, the lawyers, the private lawyers that Trump was listening to, or I shouldn't just say lawyers because there were other parties involved, but basically Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, um, Mike Flynn, uh, some others, uh, meeting in the Oval Office for hours with uh, with Pat Cipollone, uh, Eric Hirschman, and others from the uh, White House Counsel's Office and arguing apparently about whether Trump ought to use the military to seize voting machines that uh, Ms. Powell uh, insisted were uh, corrupted by foreign forces that were changing Biden votes to Trump votes, even though there was no uh, evidence of that that's and that's
2: insane. <laughs>
5: in fact, she's she's now looking at a defamation case over some of her uh statements about Dominion on that and in connection with that um she's filed one set of papers that said um you know, essentially nobody would have uh, taken some of the public statements that she was making seriously as true. Right.
2: She's so like, I'm. I am so old- facially. I'm so facially ludicrous. No one could have believed it, except this was the stuff that was being presented and argued passionately to the public and to the president, and a lot of people were buying it. And her her excuse now in in court, her defense is, oh, none of that was. It was so ridiculous. No one could have taken it seriously. Well, a lot of people did.
5: Yes, I think that's right, Guy. But I think at a certain point the indications at the hearing were that President Trump didn't take it seriously because in the wee hours of the morning after this meeting, he goes back to the residence, and it's then at 1.42 in the morning at, on December 19th that he issues the famous tweet telling everyone to come to Washington on uh, January 6th, and it's going to be wild. There's going to be a big demonstration. <clears throat> so the committee's theory, and I think this is is probably right, is that uh, after hearing out Powell et al., uh trump decided that there was uh that that was a dead end as far as the uh you know the machines were concerned and the fraud allegations in court were dead end so he set his sights at that point on january 6th and trying to implement what's been called the eastman strategy after the lawyer john eastman where they would try to get republican congress uh members of congress to object to key uh, state electoral votes and have uh, Vice President Biden uh, – uh, I'm sorry, Vice President uh, Pence, Pence rule them to be either invalid or send the matter back to the states for recertification.
2: And then there were some of these text messages that I saw floating around, uh, one between the former campaign manager, Brad Pascal, and a Trump surrogate, Christina Pearson, I believe. Um, right about who was at fault for the riot on January 6th and what happened. And Pascal, again, Trump's campaign manager, was expressing some regret for helping Trump at all, given what was happening. And Pearson suggested it was not Trump's rhetoric that had whipped all of this up. And he said affirmatively, yes, it was. He... Publicly sort of changed his tune and was saying something different for public consumption within days, but privately that's what he was saying, so that got some attention. Then also Liz Cheney uh, at least telling the public that the committee had referred to DOJ this potential witness tampering situation involving Trump. I don't really have details there, Andy, How easy is it to prove witness tampering? Does that have legs? I know a lot of people are clamoring for an indictment of the president himself. I don't know if we're going to get that uh, ever. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But, you know, if it's true that Trump was trying to call personally a witness for some reason of trying to change or affect his or her testimony, that would be problematic and illegal. I think given at least what we know now, perhaps hard to prove. Yeah, Guy, I
5: I really think that uh, much as I admire Liz Cheney, um, she ought to either not say anything along these lines or she ought to say everything. But to to float this out as like half a story, uh, you know, it smacks too much of, you know, stay tuned for our next episode. Uh, And I I don't think it's appropriate to float out the innuendo that – uh, former president may be intimidating witnesses. They ought to say more if they have an allegation yep. like that. It's if a serious and one. if you've
2: got evidence, say it and bring it to us and not right. say, oh, it's coming up. Or And there's been a few different teases on this, and maybe they have their reasons, but I, I tend to agree with you on that point. Andy, I just want to jump in real quick and bring us a very quick Fox News alert, actually, here. This is just great. Yeah, we just got word of this. Ivana Trump, the first wife of former president Donald Trump, has died according to a statement released by the trump family more details coming uh donald trump actually has now put out this statement quote i'm very saddened to inform all of those that loved her of which there are many that ivana trump passed away at her home in new york city she was a wonderful beautiful and amazing woman who led a great and inspirational life her pride and joy were her three children don jr ivanka and eric she was so proud of them as we were all so proud of her, of her rest in peace, Ivana. That is what we just got coming in moments ago from President Trump. Uh, Andy, I just wanted to bring that to our audience. In the meantime, I would like to ask you to put your prosecutor hat on and maybe break down for us or discuss with us this bodega situation in New York City that's gotten so much attention with a seemingly pretty clear-cut case of self-defense And the person who arguably saved his own life by killing one of his attackers was put in jail and charged with murder. And you look at uh, some of the charging decisions that are made in New York City in the opposite direction. This one, understandably, in my view, has stirred a lot of controversy and anger. What do you see here in this case?
5: Well, uh, let me first say, Guy, that I uh, extend condolences to the Trump family. That's very sad news. Um, As far as the situation in New York is concerned, you know, I think this is the uh, it's, it's hard to call it the ugly underbelly because there's no good side of these progressive prosecutors. On the one hand, they won't prosecute real criminals. And on the other hand, what they're trying to convey is the thing that everybody thinks is an appropriate use of force, which is to say, um, self-defense, which is a natural right, which is why we have the Second Amendment. This was not a gun situation, but it's why we have the Second Amendment in the Constitution in the first place. You have a natural right to self-defense. The thought that that ought to be penalized and that you would put somebody in Rikers Island and ask for $500,000 bail under circumstances where they can't, act, they won't arrest anyone. I mean they have violent criminals that they won't arrest because they put them in categories where they don't charge anymore. And then they take this guy who is, I mean, does anybody really think he wants to work in a tough neighborhood, long hours, the kind of in a dangerous job? You know, here's a guy, he's trying to make a living, uh, and uh, it's not safe for him. Uh, And he he obviously
2: got intimidated and assaulted. Um, Yeah, he was attacked. And it's just, it's to your point, Andy, it's like it's exactly backwards. It's just sort of like uh, you can go free if you're a hardened criminal over and over again, but you defend yourself against a hardened criminal and you're in Rikers Island facing murder charges. And it's just, uh, it's an abomination and it, it should not stand. Andy McCarthy, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, thank you. And again, repeating this breaking news, Ivana Trump, first wife to Donald Trump, dead at the age of 73. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, yesterday here, we had Jessica Tarloff getting ready for the five. And one of the topics that she and I discussed was the baby formula shortage, which got a flurry of attention in the media a couple weeks ago. It's been a while now. And the White House then sort of started talking about it a lot. And they sent the president out to say one or two things. And there were questions about it at the daily press briefings. And people were reading out of their binders or whatever. And then it kind of seemed to go away. The issue seemed to vanish, at least from the overall public news cycle consciousness side of things. So I was surprised to see a Bloomberg story that I cited yesterday with Jesse suggesting that the problem was absolutely not over and perhaps in some ways deteriorating. Because you might remember the timeline of this. The Biden administration was caught flat footed by something that they admit that they knew about many months in advance with this shutdown of the plant. For Pfizer, and the relevant executives in the industry said, oh, we all knew that this meant huge disruptions were coming. And then the administration and the White House seemed to be like, oh, gosh, yes, we, we knew about it. and We were all over it. And then it got really bad anyway. We're not just Johnny come lately to the problem. They were trying to have it always. And of course, they were unconvincing, as they so often are, because once again, there was a problem coming. It was foreseeable, and they've blown it. So I'm sure they're happy that for the most part the media has stopped covering it. And I'll admit maybe to being part of the problem, assuming that things had gotten better because it wasn't quite as front and center. And then out come a few reports here and there saying, no, that's not the case. And as I relayed to Jesse, one of my clues on this was going to the grocery store last week and seeing the shelves for Baby Formula up in the front of the store, sort of segregated out behind locked glass. And most of those shelves were empty. I took a photo of it. I tweeted it at the time like, hey, this is still a thing. And so it is. Wall Street Journal with a new story just today. Headline, baby formula shortage deepens, defying replenishment efforts. Out of stock levels remain high in U.S. stores. Quote, until those shelves are full, the crisis continues. From the story, U.S. stores are still struggling to stock baby formula, despite months-long efforts by manufacturers and the Biden administration to boost supplies. Availability of powdered formula products in the U.S. dropped this month to the lowest level so far this year. The lowest level yet on powdered formula in terms of availability. Wow. With about 30% of products out of stock for the week-ending july 3rd while availability improved slightly last week out of stock levels remain higher than in recent months at the same time consumers are finding fewer choices of brands sizes or formats of formula on grocery store shelves as the variety of available products shrinks so fewer options deepening problems with availability And on powdered stuff, which is what many people use, most people use for their children, that availability is now at its lowest level of the crisis. So the idea that this kind of just got cleared up or fixed is not true. Based on a disruption that was foreseen, not just foreseeable, foreseen many months ago. And it feels once again like the Biden government is playing catch up. They deal with things as messaging problems more than policy problems. And even though they made a big show out of the pallets being flown in from other countries and look at what we're doing, all this stuff belated, the problem has actually worsened in recent weeks. And a lot of it comes back to overregulation and the insanity that we cannot sell totally safe baby formula that's approved in Europe. We can't sell that here because of red tape at the FDA. Same thing with the monkey pox. Vaccine. They're just allowing a million doses to languish from Denmark because of all these silly rules. And you might just laugh and make the point about, oh, government regulation, big government strikes again, except this is public health. Both of these issues monkeypox and baby formula. And then, of course, everything with COVID. When these institutions fail, And their regulations are burdensome to the point of being actively harmful to public health. People need to pay extra attention. These are not just simple cautionary tales. They are active problems being exacerbated by the government. And I hope some people might derive some lessons from this. Just maybe. We will keep on this, as we promised Jesse Tarloff, because there's a lot of mothers right now listening in the audience, young mothers nodding along. Yep, Welcome to our world. It didn't go away. Thanks a lot, Guy. Well, we're trying. And that's your update. Another hour of the Guy Benson show is coming up. Bill Malugin, our Fox colleague, is going to be here. He's got the latest from the border. You do not want to miss that. Get straight ahead.
0: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
2: A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern weekdays. If you can't listen as we air, which is our top recommendation, truly. But if you can't, we have a podcast for that. It is free of charge. It is on demand. It is every day. It is at your fingertips. GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And if you're looking for the podcast, you can also check out FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me now is Bill Malugin, national correspondent at Fox News, based in L.A., but often at the southern border. We will be talking about stories from both of those places here with Bill, and it's good to have you back, sir. Hey, Guy. Always a pleasure to join you. Let's start at the southern border. I've been watching your Twitter feed, as I so often do, with great interest, and some of the videos that you have been posting are still shocking. I know that a lot of people maybe have become numb is a word that we used yesterday because it's just a constant flow, this barrage of people showing up and crossing into our country illegally illegally. There are still videos from time to time or images or anecdotes that are shocking. And the minute plus long video that you posted, I think it was yesterday, the day before, of hundreds upon hundreds of people just crossing over the river, being guided along by coyotes. I know it's not necessarily unusual to see something like that. It was just the scale and scope of it. What did you see? What's the significance? Put it into context for us.
4: Well, it, it stunned us, too, because that was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, single mass crossings we've ever seen in all of our coverage of the southern border. And just a week before that, we had thought we had seen, you know, the biggest at the time, a group of more than 500. So we were just sitting uh, on the banks of the Rio Grande in our live shot location. We kind of have several spots picked out where we know the cartels like to move across big groups. And we hadn't seen anything in that spot for a couple days. And we we were just sitting there. And then all of a sudden I looked up and I saw a bunch of different colors moving through the trees maybe about a half mile out from us. And I I told my producer, I said, look at that. And then there was a clearing in the trees, and we saw all these people start walking towards us. So we knew there was a a big group heading our way. And then all of a sudden, out of the tree line, hundreds of people just start popping out of the trees, led by cartel uh, smuggler guides, and they just start getting into the water in a long Congo line that went on for like over 10 minutes, hundreds upon hundreds of people Broad daylight, no border patrol anywhere, um, just walking right across the river and walking into Texas. There were When they first came across, there were literally only two Texas National Guard soldiers there. That's it. It was one of the biggest groups we had ever seen. And the Del Rio sector there is just getting hammered. Uh, the last two days in a row, they've had more than 2,200 illegal crossings. And that's one sector. So you're looking at 4,500 people in two days in one single sector. And it's because they keep getting those massive groups like that. And, yeah, you're right. That I mean, that video, I think, is opening a lot of eyes. It's got almost 4 million views on, on my Twitter page now, which is it's obviously a lot more views than a lot of the other stuff I post. Um, but I tried to keep the shot wide because it really did show – the massive scope of how many people were crossing into the U.S. in one spot in broad daylight with no resistance whatsoever, as we continue to hear from the administration that the border is closed or that there's operational control or they tell Mike <laughs> it's not to come. It's just it's not true. It's not working. None of their policies are working, and it's just getting worse. And, Guy, it's like 108 degrees when we shoot that video. Remember, that the White House said this is a seasonal thing. It would slow down in the summer heat. No, it's not, and no, it won't. It's because of policies. And these people keep coming, and they're not going to stop coming. And the images are are getting more remarkable, seemingly, with each trip we make.
2: There is no way that you can watch that video that we're talking about and with a straight face, with your hand on your heart, claim that you can truly believe that the border is closed and the United States maintains operational control over that southern border. You just can't. You simply cannot, based on... What you guys recorded and what we can now watch because of it with our own eyes. And it always is interesting to me, Bill. I know you deal with this somewhat regularly, attacks against you, attacks against your reporting, some of the critics of our network or your coverage, sort of making it seem like you're out there just being an activist and trying to shade things in a way that feeds a certain narrative. I know that's not true. I was down at the border. I saw a lot of this stuff for myself. You've been there much, much more than I have. And it's almost like it gets conspiratorial where people are saying things like, oh, gosh, oh, Fox News just happened to have a camera. What a coincidence where all these hundreds of people came, like maybe, I don't know, false flag allegation. You really have to scrape the bottom of the barrel to try to turn this into anything other than what it is, which is absolutely unbelievable uncontrolled illegal migration into this country with absolutely no respect whatsoever for the laws and sovereignty of this country. That's what you're reporting on and documenting. But I guess some people don't want that story being told at all. And so they come after you.
4: Yeah, it's gotten pretty ridiculous. I mean, after we after we posted that video, uh, and it's not just random Internet trolls. I mean, these are people verified accounts, blue check marks suggesting that we are either staging these mass crossings, or <laughs> potentially, or potentially amazing. paying people. You know, how, how did we know this was going to happen? But like how crisis are are, actors? Yeah, how, yeah. How, how are? Uh, yeah, I, guy, I, I I just managed to pay twenty thousand Haitians to show up under a bridge last summer too. <laughs> now I you know I, I got a new payroll in yesterday. It's it's just ridiculous and. The way we're able to know where and when to go is because we've been covering this nonstop for more than 14 months now. We've developed contacts and sources, and we've learned all across the border when and where cartels like to move people. It's that simple. And if any of these people would just come down to the border, they would see it's not very hard to find any of this stuff because it's happening all over the place. And you know, there are people tweeting saying, "This is fishy." Border Patrol's not there. How, you know, I live near the border, but you know, Border Patrol's everywhere. Well. They're always dealing with groups. They're busy, and there was no Border Patrol when that group crossed. And the other thing is we showed that live on the air. <laughs> I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what else we can do. We showed it during a live shot. So there's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be clowns on Twitter who, who speculate about stuff. But it is remarkable that there are so many people suggesting that this is either staged or it's not legitimate. Or uh, You know what I think it is? Is that video is perhaps waking up and showing people, you know, what's actually happening down here. Some people are That's getting right. exposed to it more so than they would have liked to have. So they have to find some sort of reason, some sort of excuse. Don't believe your lying eyes. There's something else going, down, going on down here rather than what the video actually showed.
2: Well, they I, don't about, want, I was going to say they yeah, don't yeah. want to grapple, Bill, with the reality. So they try to dismiss it with these crazy crackpot theories. I think that that's relatively fringe stuff. But as you say, it's not just these random trolls. There's an attempt to delegitimize facts. And you would think there'd be a lot of people in the news media who've done a lot of preening about the importance of truth and facts and all of that over the last couple of years who might want to do a better job of covering facts like this, especially having gotten the whipping story wrong and twisting facts completely out of, you know, beyond recognition not that long ago. And yet here we are. Not that many people are paying attention to it, even though it continues to ramp up as a huge problem. I do want to ask you, it seems like it's around now. Maybe within the next few days each month that we start to get inklings of what the previous month's totals were in terms of encounters at the border. We know that in May it was a record-setting month by far, getting close to a quarter million apprehensions at the southern border, plus tens of thousands of known gotaways and an unknown number of unknown gotaways, obviously, just astronomical sums When are we going to see the June numbers coming in? And it sounds like July, even though it's getting super hot and scorching down there, no signs of slowing either. What's the the time frame in your mind on when we'll get June and July's figures?
4: So I'll have the June numbers any day now, um, whether it's from CBP releasing it or from DHS's monthly court filing because they're being sued by the states of Texas and Missouri. Uh, they have to file a, a filing in court every month, and that, sometimes I get the numbers from that. What I'm hearing from multiple sources is June's numbers are going to be a little bit lower than May. I'm hearing there were about 197,000 encounters just with Border Patrol uh, in June. That does not account for CBP OFO, the Office of Field Operations, so that does not count the ports of entry. Just strictly in between ports of entry, I'm hearing there were about 197,000. So we're looking at you know once once CBP's numbers get added into it, it'll be somewhere in the twos. Um, But it'll be lower than what May was. However, based off what we're seeing in July so far, it looks like July is going to skyrocket. So uh, I'm also hearing there were more than 50,000 gotaways in June. So that is continuing as well. That would put put us near half a million since October um, and puts us close to about 900,000 since fiscal year 2021 first began. Uh, Those are not official numbers. That's just what I'm – when it comes to the encounter numbers, those are not official numbers. That's just what I'm hearing right now. Uh, They should officially be released, probably within the next couple of days.
2: And you may have heard me sort of laughing in the background, not because it's funny or amusing. It's just scoffing at how incredible it is, the scale of this problem, and to our previous part of the conversation, the scale of the denial about the problem, where it's just this drumbeat every month of shockingly bad news on this front that has been directly incentivized by the people running the federal government. And it's sort of a second or third tier news story right now, at least for a lot of outlets, because there really is no excuse here. There's no good explanation. And that's why I think the response is either complete accusatory nonsense and conspiracy theories or silence. And a lot of Your colleagues in the press are choosing the latter option. One more question on immigration before we get to a law and order issue in Los Angeles. You will often chronicle and amplify some of the social media posts and press releases and announcements from officials at the border, federal or state level, talking about the people who have been taken into custody who are known criminals, in many cases known violent criminals. And I always make clear That it is not fair at all to paint with a broad brush and pretend that any huge percentage of illegal immigrants are violent, dangerous people. The vast majority of them are not. They want to come here for a better life. They don't have a right to do that illegally, but it's different than people who have been convicted of terrible crimes. However, when there's this crush of people and U.S. resources and personnel are overwhelmed, you're going to get a lot of bad people incentivized in this flood to come. And some of them do get caught, thankfully. Many of them do not, to the conversations we've had multiple times about the the gotaways. But just in the last couple, what, week or two, I've seen on your feed child rapists, sexual assailants, murderers. I mean, this is sort of commonplace, unfortunately, and it's a mistake to avert our eyes completely from the public safety component of all of this.
4: Absolutely. And uh, it it has been startling, to be honest, because it's happening across multiple Border Patrol sectors. I mean, just just today I put out a post that in recent days in Laredo, Yuma, Tucson, uh, Tucson and Del Rio sector, just like you mentioned, arrests for. Child rape, sexual abuse of a child, lewd acts with a child under 14, fondling of a child in the state of Indiana. There was a, rap- a child rapist from Guatemala who was caught sneaking through private ranches in Del Rio Sector. Del Rio Sector announced they just caught two child molesters within 12 hours of each other. Um, the overwhelming majority of people coming across the border are not going to have criminal records. As you mentioned, they're just looking to have a good life and uh, you know, better economic conditions. However, the two go hand in hand. And some people might say, how? Well, when those huge groups come across... It sucks up Border Patrol resources off the front lines, which enables – The bad guys to come through and that is why there have been so many gotaways under this administration because border patrol agents have just been buried in these huge groups coming across like we showed in that first video when you get three four five hundred coming across at a time that takes dozens of agents off the front lines to respond and do the paperwork and the processing and that enables cartels to push the drugs and the bad guys through and when you have we're, we're we're pushing almost a million gotaways since the beginning of fiscal year 2021 it is a statistical Certainty that there are going to be some very bad apples mixed into there who have gotten into this country. They are constantly arresting every day at the border criminals with some pretty scary convictions. But the the scarier thing is those are only the ones they catch. And there are so many getting away. So it's a nuanced topic. It's a nuanced topic. But people have to understand that It's a huge risk. And I mean, look what just happened in Ohio. You know, some of our Border Patrol sources are telling us, um, you know, the illegal immigrant who allegedly raped that 10 year old girl. They're they're not finding any records on him. Uh, And they believe he was a gotaway in the past and was never processed by Border Patrol when he stuck into the country. He came through between a port of entry. None of my contacts uh, are, are aware of any Border Patrol interaction with him.
2: And, Bill, I've seen this tedious, pedantic debate out there about whether you can technically call the border open. It's certainly not closed, as we've said, and calling this status quo operational control is a joke. And big things changed after President Trump left office. Succeeding policies were abandoned, and we can see what's been happening. Got to step aside real quick, Bill, but I want to move to another subject you've been reporting on. We'll get to that next.
0: Guy Benson will be right back.
2: Fox's Bill Melugin, my guest on The Guy Benson Show. Shifting briefly, Bill, to another story that you've reported on out of Los Angeles, the embattled district attorney in that city who is facing a recall campaign. They've gathered the signatures, it seems, requisite to get that on the ballot. He has done something else very controversial here. You had that exclusive. Tell us what just happened.
4: Yeah, so uh, I was told by multiple sources in the DA's office on Tuesday that, um, Prosecutors and victim advocates who work in the, uh, it's called the LIFER unit, um, they were notified that they will no longer be allowed to notify victims of crime or next of kin of victims of crime about upcoming parole hearings for inmates. He is disbanding the LIFER unit later this year, uh, and starting in November, the LADA office will no longer notify victims of crime that their attacker uh, could be getting out of prison soon and has an upcoming parole hearing. Uh, George George Gascon apparently feels it's inappropriate, and he gave me a statement yesterday, a stunning statement, I would add, uh, saying that he believes notifying victims of crime could be triggering to them. He says it's time-consuming for attorneys in his office to do it and is, quote, unnecessary, and he said that uh, responsibility should fall to the state of California, not to the LADA's office. So he is disbanding the unit and starting later this fall. Um, victims of crime in L.A. County will no longer be notified by the L.A. County DA's office about future parole hearings. It is a stunning development. It is causing absolute outrage amongst the prosecutors in the DA's office. And and I victims think covering, advocates. Yes. And I've been covering Gascogne for about almost two and a half years now. And during that time, I have interviewed many, many, many victims of crime in L.A. County. And keep in mind, He already barred prosecutors from going to parole hearings. So now not only are these victims not having any prosecutors at parole hearings to argue against release for these hardcore criminals, they're now not even being notified about the parole hearings. And I'll put a a long story into a quick little nutshell. I did a horrible story last year about a six-year-old, an eight-year-old brother and sister who were raped and sodomized by this pedophile back in 2004. The guy's been in prison. His parole hearing was yesterday. Um, They did not have any prosecutors from the LADa's office with them. They had the victims of that crime, the victims of child rape, had to look their attacker in the eye and face him without any representatives from the LADa's office. Now, thankfully, they had attorneys who are volunteers through something called Marzi's Law. Under California law, you can have volunteers come help you at these hearings. But Gasco now passed, passed a policy that doesn't even allow his prosecutors to. Uh, tell victims that these volunteers are available. He truly does not want any help for victims of crime at these parole hearings. He doesn't want them to know about it, and if they do know about no, it, he doesn't want any prosecutors there. It is, it's truly stunning, Guy.
2: It's unconscionable, and it's part of a pattern, a pro-criminal, anti-victim pattern with George Gascon. And I hope that this recall picks up steam and succeeds. Bill Malugin, we've got to leave it there for now. National correspondent at Fox News, based in LA, spends a lot of time, as I mentioned, down at the border. Bill, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Stepping aside, coming right back on The Guy Benson Show.
0: listening to a new generation of talk guy benson
2: we return here on the guy benson show thank you so much for tuning in guybensonshow.com our website podcast is free of charge on demand every single day plus bonus benson on the weekends don't forget about that option with us now is general jack Keane, a retired four-star general he is chairman of the institute for the study of war and fox news senior strategic analyst general as always thank you for being here Yeah,
6: delighted to be here, Guy, with you and your audience.
2: I'd like to open with just a broad question about the situation on the ground in Ukraine, which you are studying every single day. I know last time we spoke it seemed like Russia had gained some ground and maybe the Ukrainians had lost some momentum. I have seen in recent days reports that some of the advanced weapons from the United States have arrived, maybe not turning the tide in the east but certainly making an impact. Reports that the Russians have been shocked at the Effectiveness of the weapons in the hands of the Ukrainians that they've just gotten recently. Where do things stand at the moment?
6: Yeah, well, certainly Russia did have some military momentum in taking the eastern portion of the donbass region, something they declared as an objective uh, after their failure to take uh, Kiev, uh, the capital of uh, of Ukraine, and they were they were able to do this. It it took them much longer than expected, uh, a few months. Uh, as opposed to a few weeks. They used uh, a grinding artillery attrition campaign uh, to accomplish it, um, and they were able to, to take territory that uh, the Ukrainians, you know, obviously reluctantly gave up, but the Ukrainians made a decision that they were not going to fight to a standstill because they wanted to preserve their force for the future. And And what has happened, though, the Russians have taken – significant casualties in, in accomplishing what is a limited objective. And as a result of it, while not all of their units have stopped fighting, they had to take an operational pause, which they're in. Some units are still fighting. Um, and the reason is they have to rearm and refit. Over the next several weeks, I think we're going to see a shift uh, towards the Ukrainians because they're currently planning and preparing a counteroffensive. offensive. It may take uh, a few more weeks for them to put it all together, and and as such, this is a huge opportunity for the Ukrainians to take take back territories. No guarantee, guy, that they they will be able to do this, but certainly uh, we're hopeful that they can. And and I think this will be a, a major move uh, prior to the winter on on the part of the Ukrainians. Uh, if they're successful, uh, then I think uh, we're facing a war of attrition. Uh, with the, uh, if they're unsuccessful, we're facing a war of attrition uh, with the Russians uh, gradually over time taking territory away from uh, Ukrainians. You are right. The advanced weaponry howitzers have had a payoff. Uh, the uh, HIMARS have had a significant payoff, particularly the ones the United States gave the Ukrainians, because they've been able to get at their major supply depots, particularly those that are associated. Uh, with artillery and it's been quite devastating for them. I mean it's not decisive in the sense that that by itself is turning the tide of the war, but it has had uh, a, maybe uh, a larger impact than the, what the Russians thought and even what the Ukrainians expected.
2: When you look ahead at the calendar because we're in the middle of the summer here, what are the indicators time-wise? Like what are the signposts in your mind that are going to be significant about how this is going to go longer term whether it'll turn into this stalemate war of attrition back and forth a game of inches indefinitely versus something more decisive what what's the timeline looking like in your mind
6: well i think we'll see the ukrainians begin a counteroffensive in the next a few weeks and and that 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 will likely last uh if they're able to begin to take territory back it could that could last for Two or three months, you know, up until the winter time, um, that's that's the timeline I think we're facing. In the meantime, certainly the the Russians are going to continue to move into the western part of the Donbass region, and using the same methodology with a grinding art, uh, artillery attrition warfare. But the, the Ukrainians in that part of the Donbass are are better defending. And when the Institute for the Study of War uh, uh, analysts look at that, they question whether the Russians can actually take the Western part of the Donbass uh, because of the Ukrainian defenses and also because of the limitations of, of, of the Russians and the casualties that they've, they've encountered.
2: I want to shift to another theater of the globe and ask you a question that deals with China, but it focuses on Japan. We saw just recently last week the shocking and horrible and outrageous assassination of the former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, who was a nationalist, a conservative, a strong critic of communist China, and really a statesman with great significance. He was their longest-serving prime minister, and his loss was grieved all around the world. Within just a few days of that assassination, it happened— He was shot while on the campaign trail, stumping for his political party. That party then, in the election that happened, won huge majorities to the point that analysts are saying they could have the votes to reform the Constitution in Japan, which has been pacifist since World War II. I think we can sort of understand why, uh, sort of a sore spot there. But Japan of today is completely different than it was all those decades ago. And there's at least some speculation that the Japanese government may now militarize and build up something of a military and perhaps become something of a counterweight, at least a minor one, if not more, to China in that region. I just wonder what your thoughts are on the assassination, the fallout, that election over there, and what it would mean for the world, what it would mean for Western powers and sort of the anti-China alliance if Japan decided to ramp up military expansion and, and becoming a militarized state again, and what that would mean in China and what Beijing might be thinking as they watch all of this.
6: Yeah, well, certainly Shinzo Abe, uh, you know, was a leader who made a paradigm shift in his country. I mean, he literally awakened Japan to the dangers that prevail in the region from North Korea and the continuous ballistic missile testing going back a number of years, nuclear testing. And, and certainly uh, he helped educate uh, President Trump on uh, the danger of North Korea and also, uh, as he awoken among his own population, the danger of, of China. And I know from having been in Japan and have spoken to his foreign minister when he was the serving prime minister, he told his foreign minister told me uh, that um, Shinzo Abe and President Trump uh, spoke more together than uh, any other leader that uh, – that President Trump was encountering so. Yeah, they had a very think, close relationship. Yeah, very much so, and, and I think, in a way, uh, Shinzo Abe was educating uh, President Trump. He would never do that publicly, certainly, but you know, giving him uh, uh, in-depth uh, analysis of, of what is really going on, and, and he awakened his population to the danger, so much so that he began to up their defenses and put money, more money, into the budget. And he made public statements about, uh, you know, an attack on Taiwan is similar to an attack on Japan, and we would defend them. And, and certainly he, he wanted a, a declaration like that from from the United States. He didn't quite get that. But he certainly uh, got uh, the United States embarking on a campaign to make certain that uh, Taiwan is better armed than what they have been and, and better defended uh, than in the past, and, and certainly aroused in the United States a, a real concern about China. I mean, obviously, Trump came into power knowing China was a major problem facing the United States. And his focus was initially economically. But I think uh, that focus broadened, and Shinzo Abe uh, contributed to the broadening of that, un- that understanding. And I and I think, I mean, it's just horrific what happened to him um, and, and I was told that, uh, you know, security for him as a prime minister wasn't all that different than what security was there um, when he was making a speech uh, almost on the side of the road. Um, because it's such a nonviolent country, um, they don't have anything near the kind of security details that a president of the United States had. It seemed shocking to us that somebody could stand behind him and, and raise a uh, something that looked like a cutoff shotgun and fire it twice. Um, but uh, thankfully, uh, the uh, the election results uh, certainly is a testimony to how shocked the nation was, but how much they also, the belief and confidence that they've had in Shinzo Abe, uh, that uh, the country will likely move to a much stronger nation in terms of national security. And his aspirational goal to rewrite the Constitution, as you indicated, uh, to move it from the shadows of uh, World War II and into the, into the 21st century as it as it rightfully should be that time i think is coming and uh and he deserves the credit for it yeah yes. china certainly looks at, at at japan as a problem now uh because this is a a country that has a good economy it can have a much better military than it has it has improved its military and it's on record uh to uh to coming to the uh to aid of of, of taiwan Something uh, no other country in the region has been willing to make a statement to that effect. So yeah, they they certainly have concerns about uh, Japan's growing militarism.
2: That was the Liberal Democratic Party, Abe's party, which is you know a a right party. They needed seventy seats in their parliament to form a supermajority in the election. And after that assassination, they won eighty-seven, so far surpassing what they needed and so they might have this opportunity to reform the Constitution, build up militarily. And it sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you think that would be a welcome development to have a more muscular Japan in that region, yes?
6: Oh, yeah, but Japan's right there in the first island chain. And, and, and they, you know, they've analyzed it. they look at it. If, if, if China took Taiwan, not only have they captured one of the most high-tech uh, uh, capabilities, capabilities of any country in the world, uh, but th- the, they will militarize it and Taiwan become a military base and they will begin to encroach on Japan. And Japan sees that and the danger of what that entails uh, for them. They see their security tied to Taiwan's security. So what I see uh, going forward uh, is, is more military capability, but more exchanges uh, more uh, military exercises, and I think we're going to see the United States military doing more uh, in the region, stitching together the other militaries in the region of like mind in terms of uh, attempting to counter uh, China's aggression in the region. This is yep. all a good thing moving in the right direction, uh, coming out of something that was really quite horrible and shocking in terms of his assassination.
2: Yeah, you think about Australia, you think about India, a massive military with a huge population there. So it's definitely an area to watch very closely. I know that General Keane is doing so. Finally, General, before I let you go, I want to get your analysis on a very painful subject, and we will do that as soon as we come back. Quick break. Back with General Jack Keene after this.
0: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: We are back with General Jack Keane on The Guy Benson Show. One last topic here, General. I would suspect that we will be having you back in the coming weeks to discuss this in further depth. But we are approaching the one-year anniversary, and I can sort of almost not quite believe it's only been a year. It feels almost like a mini-lifetime ago, but it's coming up on a year of the really disastrous and disgraceful U.S. withdrawal From Afghanistan, not just the policy, which was broadly supported by the American people, pulling the U.S. out. I know that you came on this program and made your case why a full withdrawal would be a mistake. That policy issue aside, the way it was done, the promises that were made, and then broken, really shattered for a lot of Americans and and allies over there. The signals that it sent to friends and foes alike with that whole debacle playing out, the way that it did, the loss of life, the bombing that killed our service members, it really wasn't that long ago, less than 12 months ago this happened. Later this summer we will look back on that. As we get ready to return to that issue, I just wonder if you would comment briefly here on the legacy of that decision and the way that it was carried out.
6: Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, well, it is shocking because the president made a decision to make an unconditional withdrawal from Afghanistan, put no conditions in place that would provide guarantors that uh, the Taliban could not take over from uh, from the Afghan government, and he he overrode all the recommendations of his. Uh, of his military chain of command to include a secretary of defense, the chairman, the on-scene commander in Afghanistan, and to include a central intelligence agency uh, director who's a political appointee. And he overruled ruled all of them because he, you know, this is where Biden's arrogance came to play. He believes he knows better. He's been involved in in these decisions for years, as, as he indicated. And he was the one that made the recommendation Over the objection of then four-star General Lloyd Austin, who's now serving as the Secretary of Defense, while he was the four-star commander in Iraq who recommended that we keep 22,000 troops there to preserve the stability that we have been managed to achieve as a result of the successful surge, he rejected that recommendation and recommended to President Obama that we withdraw completely from Iraq, uh, which, as we all know, painfully aware of, a couple of years later, we got ISIS as a result of it. There will be reverberations from this decision in Afghanistan, and we've already seen one of them, and, and and that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, I think that they are connected. I think Putin looked at this and saw the weakness of the United States walking away from an ally that we've been fighting with side by side for 20 years. and This isn't somebody we've been arming. Uh, only This is someone who we've been fighting with side by side and and, and wanting just to walk away and, and leave them there, abandoning them, not provide air support for them for months leading up to the withdrawal. Uh, so they became conditioned to what the lack of U.S. support is really going to be like, and their morale just gradually over time faded away because they saw that we, they were being abandoned by the United States. This is before we actually ever walked out. Uh, This was months leading up to it. So, yes, uh, I I think uh, the consequences are still going to be felt uh, around the world as a result of that kind of a display of weak American leadership. I think it's that play in the Middle East, uh, because when they saw the United States abandon that ally, and then they saw President Biden in the same year, last year, uh, uh, reach out First and foremost, to the Iranians to go back to a flawed yes. deal, as right. opposed to working with the Arabs. Trump had given him a gift, the Abraham Accor- Accords, where Arabs and the Israelis were coming together. Well, what's the reason for doing that? To counter the Iranians. Saudi Arabia is the arch rival of the Iranians in the region, and Biden administration stiffed the Arabs, reached out to the Iranians, and and they looked at that and said, "My God, they are." They're abandoning us just like they abandoned the Afghanistan. So yeah, I I think it's had some pretty significant adverse effects when you display weak American leadership like that. There always are consequences and they have they have been felt.
2: Yep, those are the geopolitical consequences, then just the everyday consequences in people's lives. Americans left behind allies left behind who we had promised to get out, some of whom have been arrested, tortured, murdered, what's happening to women over there. It's all a big picture and a bleak picture, and it's something that unfortunately we're going to be looking back on next month in more detail. And, General, I'm sure we will get more of your thoughts on this subject then. We always do appreciate your time, your insights, your knowledge, your expertise. General Jack Keene, Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst. Thank you.
6: Great talking to you, Guy, and as always, and also your audience. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, General. And we will be right back, the final hour of the Guy Benson Show with U.S. Senator Tim Scott coming up after this break. It's our happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you very much for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And that final hour, this one, is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic, delicious, refreshing, especially when it's ice cold in the hot weather. TheLongDrink.com is their website, TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding big time. You can find out where they are sold near you at TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only our website for all ages is guy Benson The podcast is free of charge every single day on demand right there. With us now is U S Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, author of a forthcoming book, America, a redemption story available August the ninth. We'll have to have him back to talk about that. Senator. Great to have you here. Thank you, guy. And
7: thank you for being a person who focuses on truth And common sense. We need more of that in our
2: lives. Oh, I love that. We should, like, clip that and put that in a promo or something. (laughs) Thank you very much, Senator. I want to open with the number one issue facing South Carolinians, facing Americans in every state, and that is inflation. We saw another number today on the wholesale side, a huge inflationary spike over double digits, 11.3% on that statistic Worse than expectations. That's on the heels of yesterday's terrible number on overall CPI, 9.1%. We're seeing some of the excuse making from the Biden White House saying, oh, the numbers are out of date, even though they are brand new. And they don't include the decrease in gas prices that's been happening by, you know, 40 cents or whatever in recent weeks. What is your reaction to the top-line inflation numbers that we're seeing? What are you hearing from your constituents, and what do you make of the spin coming out of the West Wing? Well, Guy, when I go back
7: to my community and look at the places where I grew up, and I think to myself that tax is an invisible uh, – tax is an invisible – manifestation of the challenges that we see in this world. Let me say what I I mean by what I just said. Tax, something we don't really see, so it's invisible, yet it manifests in this world in a real way. Inflation is a tax, a regressive tax on the poorest Americans working paycheck to paycheck. So when you hear the kind of lunacy coming out of the White House as it relates to the inflationary effects in our economy, you have to stop and ask yourself, are they paying attention to people working paycheck to paycheck? paycheck. At home in South Carolina, the average person in my state is being hit so hard by inflation that they can't remember a time like this in our lifetimes. This is as bad, if not worse, in some ways, than the Carter administration as it relates to the reduction in our spending power as they continue to talk about pouring more money or more fuel on the fire. They're excesses cannot be excused away by their rhetoric literally what we see with our eyes is exactly the opposite of what we're hearing with our ears from this administration
2: well and one thing that concerns me on that score and i mentioned it this morning on tv when you look back almost exactly one year ago and we played the clip on this show yesterday last year in july President Biden did this big, long, hour-long session with Don Lemon over on CNN, and he said he doesn't know anybody at the time. I know nobody who's concerned or worried about inflation, including, he said, Larry Summers, which wasn't true. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, had been explicitly warning about inflation and spending for months by that point, even back then. But Biden, the president, at the time, one year ago, said he doesn't know anyone worried about inflation my worry now, Senator, is the same people who were warning a year ago plus about inflation today are warning about recession. And the people who were downplaying the threat of inflation are playing catch-up and downplaying the threat of recession. I think if we look at who has credibility and who, ha- and who does not, we're staring down the barrel of a recession on the other end of whenever this inflation finally comes to a stop.
7: There's no doubt. There are two things we should know about what you just said. Number one, the Biden bubble is real. If in July of last year he didn't know anyone who had been negatively impacted by inflation, I'm not sure where he's living, but it's not where 98% of Americans are living, number one. Number two, I think I've told the story a few times that sitting in a restaurant called Longhorns, talking to a waitress who literally put $92 into her tank, taking eight hours of her life to earn enough money to pay for the gas, it is real, and it's being felt by everyday South Carolinians throughout the state and everyday Americans throughout the nation. The disconnect of this administration to everyday people who are the backbone of this country it just it just brings up the misery index in a negative way. Uh, things have not been worse in four decades as it relates to inflation. And frankly, when you tack that on top of crime, you're asking yourself, when are things going to get better? And when will this administration focus on people working paycheck to paycheck? They're not doing it. They have no clue. And they're lost in a rainstorm.
2: I don't understand it. You mentioned that example of that waitress, and I can relate just a little bit because I filled up my tank of gas today. I was driving this morning, and I had to stop, and I stood there pumping my gas, watching the numbers click up and up and up, and they kept going. And at a certain point, Senator, I will confess, I started muttering under my breath words that I cannot say here on the radio with you because it felt like it was never going to stop, and it eventually did it $87 for that tank of gas. I have some disposable income, I don't have kids, I can absorb that. A lot of people cannot. And you keep hearing now from the White House, "Oh, it's down. It's down a little bit." It's still 4.6470 a gallon in a lot of places. It was well over $5 a gallon that I paid here. It doesn't matter what the average is. That's what it is in this neck of the woods, more than 5 bucks a gallon. And what you have in response to that now is President Biden on his way over to Saudi Arabia. And I just want to get your thoughts on that, because I think it's a pretty amazing spectacle to see a president who showed up on day one and started signaling through policy, not just rhetoric, his hostility to U.S. energy and drilling for oil here and natural gas here and sort of going along the green agenda. Here he is, not that far removed from all of that, going hat in hand to a country that he called a pariah state. Because of the Khashoggi killing, I saw a report today that he said he's not sure he will even bring that up with the Saudis, the pariah stuff, because he's so desperate on the gas front. And I think a lot of Americans say, what are you doing? Why are we going to other countries with more despotic and authoritarian forms of government, asking them to pump more oil for us, when we can be doing a lot more of that here at home, except people like Joe Biden won't let it happen?
7: True. So true, Guy. Here's the truth. Why would we fund other people's vision of their future and not fund our vision of our future? The average American deserves resources and jobs, six-figure jobs in the energy industry, if we could get this administration to say yes to to drilling and excavating energy here at home, you mentioned a little earlier. Larry Summers, always known with, uh, or at least synonymous with the Democrat Party, here's what he says about where we are. This was predictable. This is not something that just came out of the blue. This is obvious. When you pour fuel on the fire, it gets worse. And in order to tame this fire, we're talking about maybe a hundred basis increase in order to slow down the inflation, which only increases the chance for a recession, what could help us retard this likely recession? Creating jobs at home. Where will we create those jobs? In the energy sector. What kind of jobs do we create? Jobs that are three times the median average of income, around 35000 You get a six-figure job. A six figure income job in an industry with a long, bright future called the energy industry of America that could help us in Europe as well as here at home. You talk about diffusing the Russia Ukraine situation. Let's get more energy from america to europe let's have a conversation not about lowering the gas prices at a gas station let's have a holistic conversation about how we produce energy at home and what that means at
2: the gas price at the gas pump fun well, they don't want to i mean the progressive vision is to put these companies out of business and they say it openly but then they demand that they do things right now like we're going to put you out of business in a few years but right now Cut your prices because people are hurting. It's totally incoherent. I think a lot of people are viscerally upset about it. They understand that the excuses don't wash. And here we have again this image of the president going to Saudi Arabia, perhaps even not touching human rights issues because of the desperate straits that we are in, in no small part because of the policies being pursued and not pursued by this administration. And I have to ask you, Senator, because you've – On a few occasions here, you've mentioned this imagery of pouring fuel on the fire. Well, it seems like Senate and congressional Democrats are running toward the blaze right now with another can of gasoline. Very expensive gasoline, obviously. Everything is these days. And I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the fact that it is being openly discussed, and they're apparently reportedly close to a deal, to spend more money and raise taxes on small businesses We've got a recession likely coming, 80% projection, according to some of the experts. Larry Summers, to quote him again, says he thinks it's almost inevitable. Again, he was right on inflation. Biden and team were wrong. So I think it's worth paying attention. If there's a recession on the way and you've got these small businesses already having gone through COVID, getting hammered, many of them having to close at least for a period of time. Now everything costs a lot more. The cost of doing business is brutal. It's really hard to keep employees. And now Washington Democrats, led by your colleagues in the Senate, want to raise taxes on S-Corps or pass-through corporations, which employ tens of millions of Americans. It honestly feels like legislative arson and political malpractice, and yet this is what they are openly debating right now. Can you explain this to me?
7: Guys, it's it's unexplainable, to be honest with you, but what you said is the one-two punch. Number one, the BBB, the Build Back Broker Plan, will increase inflation, lower jobs, lower profits, because higher taxes is synonymous with lower profits, and with fewer profits, you can hire fewer people. You put that with the number two. Biden, hat in hand in the Middle East, saying no to energy excavation at home and begging groveling for energy uh, increases in the Middle East. That one-two punch is hard to recover from in the current economy. And you could not have said it better when you think about the fact that if you increase the cost on small businesses – higher taxes, you are reducing profits, but you're also making it more difficult for the small business owner to hire more people and invest in more equipment to have a better future long-term.
2: Senator Scott, last question, different topic. I just want to get your perspective and your thoughts on a lot of the Democrats in Washington, D.C. basically justifying or excusing or ignoring threats and intimidation and harassment of, among other people's Supreme Court justices, at their homes. We saw an assassination plot, an incident recently at a restaurant. You couple that with the Speaker of the House pointedly refusing to condemn a terrorism campaign against pro-life pregnancy centers just to support women in their decision not to have abortions. They're getting firebombed across the country. Speaker Pelosi was asked about it to condemn it. She wouldn't do it. And some of your colleagues in the Senate, including Senator Warren from Massachusetts is saying that those resources, those organizations should be shut down around the country, which is an outrageous thing to say, even if they weren't in the middle of being targeted by terrorists right now. Uh, Your response to what you're seeing in terms of the climate of our politics right now, especially around a charged issue like this one?
7: Well... Once again, we see the failure of the so-called great uniter. The Biden administration and the Democrats have said that they were the party of unifying this country. They have done exactly the opposite. I can't think of anything more unconscionable than to condone violence against anyone and to suggest uh, through your inaction that it will continue is terrible number 1 number 2 to see that focused on our supreme court justices because they're willing to to vote the constitution is Unbelievable. Remember the comments of Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she said that Roe v. Wade, from a constitutional perspective, is on very shallow ground, very shallow water. So there's no doubt that the challenge that we're seeing today is one driven by the Constitution, not by someone's own personal objectives. The majority of Americans are exhausted. They are exhausted from this conflict driven toxic environment that is so corrosive that it is eroding confidence the average person has not only in our economy, but in ourselves. We can restore that by being the party of unity, by the party of common sense. And that's one of the reasons why I started the show off, Guy, by thanking you for being the person who continues to talk about truth and common sense with a large audience. God bless your efforts there, because we need to have a revival of sorts, of revival about truth and common sense the American way.
2: I really appreciate that, and I do think that we need more happy, sunny warriors. And one of the happiest, sunniest, and still principled warriors in Washington, D.C., is U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina. Senator, always a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Look forward to being back with you again. You bet. And we'll take a quick break. Come right back on The Guy Benson Show.
0: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
2: It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. And some happy news here, courtesy of our bosses here at Fox, an update that I'm pleased to bring you via foxnews.com. Fox News Media CEO Suzanne Scott and President Jay Wallace on Wednesday visited Fox News journalist Benjamin Hall, who was severely wounded in Ukraine earlier this year when his vehicle was struck by incoming fire while on the ground covering Russia's invasion. Quote, we have some heartwarming news to share with everyone. Jay and I traveled to Brook Army Medical Center in Texas yesterday to see Ben Hall ahead of his 40th birthday. We had a wonderful visit with him, Scott wrote in an internal email to staffers. Quote, he looks incredible given everything that he has endured. And he is truly an inspiration. He also loved the birthday card from his Fox colleagues, end quote. Scott included two photos of Hall in front of the birthday card signed by colleagues. And obviously everyone here at our show and in this audience has been pulling for Ben, praying for Ben, thinking about him. We hadn't given you too many updates because we weren't really getting much, but now we've gotten this good news to share that his progress has been steady. And that he's looking good. I actually exchanged emails with him just the other day. My dad asked after him, how's he doing? And I said, all right, good idea. I dropped him a note just to send along a little bit of encouragement. He wrote back, sounded very upbeat, incredibly polite and kind. And now we have this news as well from the top executives at Fox heading down to Texas and visiting him in the hospital. And we all are pulling for him to make as much of a recovery as he possibly can. And if he chooses to come back to work in some capacity, that would be a very welcome development. But blessings to Benjamin Hall and his family. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes right after this.
0: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: Rolling along, it's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, we caught up with Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, talking about issues of law and order, crime and punishment. Here's part of that conversation with Andy. What's the significance of this Danchenko trial? 30 subpoenas, is that a surprising number to you? And what's at stake here?
5: It's surprising to me, Guy, that uh, he needed to go to the court for subpoenas. It's just it's just not the way the practice worked when I was in the Southern District of New York. But it's not at all unusual for uh, prosecutors to issue subpoenas on the eve of trial. And you just referred to the uh, Sussman prosecution that Durham had a few months ago. I'm sure that his team uh, tried to learn the lessons of that. Uh, proceeding and is trying to make sure that it has uh, all of its ducks in a row before the trial starts.
2: And this trial is for what? What could come out of this? Well, uh, you know, the
5: interesting thing about this guy all along to me has been that the only thing Durham has charged here is lies to the FBI. That's what Danchenko, Danchenko is accused of lying to the FBI, not in the sense that the Steele dossier for which he was supposedly the main source uh, was itself fraudulent, but about lying to the FBI regarding who his sources were for the Steele dossier. I think that's interesting in the sense that uh, as far as the prosecution is concerned, the Steele dossier could be a tissue of lies or it could be Um, you know, could have come down from Mount Sinai. It really doesn't make any difference. What what he's accused of uh, is lying to the Bureau about who he got information from. And again, I think, you know, you run into the same or a similar problem, at least, that I think Durham had in the Sussman case, which is he's taking the position, obviously, that the FBI was the dupe of people who were, uh, you know, trying to run these scams about Trump's connection to Russians, rather than that the uh, FBI was, uh, you know, a willing participant in that venture. I think that's going to be a tough road for him to hoe.
2: Oh, we will keep tabs on that trial as it begins. Meantime, Andy, the January 6th committee on Capitol Hill had another hearing this week. Not as explosive as for perhaps the previous one was. There were some text messages behind the scenes that got some attention, and then a hint at the end or toward the end of that session about at least allegations of potential witness tampering against Donald Trump himself. Just walk us through, if you would, your takeaways from this week's January 6th hearing. Well,
5: the most interesting part of it, Guy, was this insane meeting that went on at the White House on December 18th of 2020, uh, in which there was apparently a near brawl between um, the lawyers, the private lawyers that Trump was listening to. or I shouldn't just say p- lawyers because there were other parties involved, but basically Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, um, Mike Flynn, uh, some others, uh, meeting in the Oval Office for hours with uh, with Pat Cipollone, uh, Eric Hirschman, and others from the uh, White House Counsel's Office and arguing – apparently about whether Trump ought to use the military to seize voting machines that uh, Ms. Powell uh, insisted were uh, corrupted by foreign forces that were changing Biden votes to Trump votes, even though there was no uh, evidence of that. That's insane. In fact, she's she's now looking at a defamation case over some of her uh, statements about Dominion on that. And in connection with that, um, she's filed one set of papers that said, um, you know, essentially nobody would have uh, taken some of the public statements that she was making seriously
2: as true. Right. She's so like, I'm, I am so all- facially, I'm so facially ludicrous. No one could have believed it, except this was the stuff that was being presented and argued passionately to the public. And to the president, and a lot of people were buying it. And her her excuse now in, in court, her defense is, oh, none of that was – it was so ridiculous. No one could have taken it seriously. Well, a lot of people did.
5: Yes, I think that's right, Guy. But I think at a certain point, the indications at the hearing were that President Trump didn't take it seriously because in the wee hours of the morning after this meeting, he goes back to the residence, and it's then – at 1:42 in the morning at, on December 19th that he issues the famous tweet telling everyone to come to Washington on uh January 6th and it's going to be wild there's going to be a big demonstration <clears throat> so the committee's theory and I think this is is probably right is that uh after hearing out Powell at all uh Trump decided that there was uh that that was a dead end as far as the uh you know the machines were concerned and the fraud allegations in court were dead end so he set his sights at that point on January 6th and trying to implement what's been called the Eastman strategy after the lawyer John Eastman, where they would try to get Republican Congress, uh, members of Congress, to object to key uh, state electoral votes and have uh, Vice President Biden uh, – uh, I'm sorry, Vice President uh, Pence, Pence rule them to be either invalid or send the matter back to the states for recertification.
2: My full interview with Andy McCarthy, along with the entirety of today's show, available online, as always, also part of that podcast. Every day, on demand, completely free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. it was National Something Day yesterday. It's always something. But this is a popular one, at least on this team. We'll talk about it when we come back.
0: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com. Home
2: stretch. It's Thursday, i.e. Friday eve on the Guy Benson Show. Hope you're enjoying your afternoon and evening and your summer. Thank you for tuning in. Guybensonshow.com podcast free every day. Well, on yesterday's home stretch, We were talking about Amazon Prime Day, or Days. Producer Christine made a few admissions on the air about her purchasing habits, her specific purchases in the last 48 hours, some things that she still wants to buy. And it sounds, Christine, like your husband Bobby was listening to the show because he walked through the door after work yesterday and said what?
8: He said, I agree with Guy Benson when he says you are crazy. He said, do you even know what you sound like when the words come out of your mouth? I said, no. I said, but I'm just living my truth. And that's all anybody can ask for, right?
2: Your truth. Isn't isn't that what
8: the kids say? I'm living my truth. It's
2: (laughs) it's just such a nonsense phrase. There's the truth. Your truth could be something that may not really be a truth. You're certainly doing what you want. That's for sure. Mm And in your your habits and the way that you go about shopping, and then you bring stuff in, you think about it, you try it on, you hang it in your closet, then in many cases you return it. My parents were listening, and my dad seemed to indicate that my mom is not nearly as bad as you are on this front, but does do this sort of thing from time to time. And he called it catch and release shopping, which I thought was sort of a funny phrase.
8: I like that. I might, I might start using that. Actually, I guarantee you, I would, I would even make a bet that ninety percent of the women out there do what I do.
2: Maybe not on
8: such a, I would say Come ninety. On.
2: Yes. Oh, yes? I, I would say a majority might be a safer bet. Ninety percent is awfully high. By the way, catch and release that term in this context relates to the profession of being an angler, which is something that you just learned what that means recently on the program this week. Do you remember what an angler is? A fisherman. Good. Okay. I just want to make sure that you actually listen, because it seems like (laughs) maybe sometimes I give advice and then you do the opposite. So I just want to make sure you actually do listen occasionally to the words that come out of my mouth here on the show that you produce. But Bobby, did he put the kibosh on any of these purchases, the new vacuum cleaner, number four? In your household, or the new earbuds that you want to get?
8: So, the earbuds are coming. Um, I'm surprised he didn't stop that, which I had to check today. Uh, he's doing something a little funky here because he said he had to cancel two of my purchases because for some reason they were getting sent to his work instead of here. I didn't do that. So, I don't know what he's doing, but he said that he was going to replay, like, you know, redo the order order. But uh, Judgey Joyce was here because she was babysitting Megan last night when Bobby got home. We were having dinner and I explained to her that I bought a vacuum. And even my mom goes, what is wrong with you? How many (laughs) vacuums do you have in this place? Like, it's not normal.
2: I asked no. the same question. I asked almost a verbatim question on the air yesterday, and at least I, it is no small comfort to me that your own husband and mother are mm-hmm. on the same wavelengths. Because sometimes I start getting into, like, a reverse gaslighting situation where I'm wondering, am I too hard on Christine? Like, am I, like, being weird? Is she not as strange as I think she is on some of this stuff? And the answer mm-hmm. seems to be no, I am correct. And Mm -hmm. so is your husband, so is your mother. So, okay, that makes me feel good. I also want to encourage you, Christine, to try to participate in this next topic, even though you just casually mentioned in the text thread that we have going, our little group text here at the (laughs) show, that this food item doesn't really apply to your lifestyle anymore, apparently. Yesterday in the United States of America, it was National French Friday which was briefly in the early 2000s, National Freedom Friday, if we all remember that. And I did, in fact, have some French fries yesterday because, you know, because America. So I went and I had some fish and chips for dinner. And I didn't finish all the French fries, but I did have a few of them with some just delicious cold ketchup to go with them. Nicely salted French fries. I was a very satisfied customer. So we were debating whether to talk about French fries on the air. I thought that maybe it would be too dull of a topic because who doesn't like French fries? And then in the group text, you have your little revelation. Quiet Wyatt starts throwing out hot garbage opinions. I'm like, okay, well, now we have to talk about this. Let's start with your news, Christine. You're not eating French fries at all?
8: Well, I will eat French fries, but unfortunately, like going to a place to eat French fries are usually uh, cooked with a seed oil. And I've eliminated seed oils from my life, so uh, I would have to find a place or I would have to make them That's very
2: dramatic sounding. It's like, I haven't cut seed oils out of my diet. I have eliminated them from my life. It's Mm -hmm. like a toxic X you're talking about.
8: Well, it's not just ingestion. Like, seed oils are in, like, you know, shampoos and moisturizers and body wash. They are everywhere. So little by little, I'm trying to, like, change that and get rid of the eight harmful seed oils. Um, Was this something that
2: your doctor told you to do because of an allergy situation, or is this Christine reading things on the Internet?
8: All Christine reading things on the Internet. Did you know? Did you know that, like, vegetable oil, canola... Those were made to actually, um, like, make engines go in the 30s. Like, we're not supposed to be ingesting this. So canola, corn, cottonseed, grapeseed, safflower, soy, sunflower, you really shouldn't be putting that into your body because so, it will mm. cause inflammation. So it is very I did not
2: know that, and I, I have no problem with any of the products that you just said. And if it tastes good, and unless there's a doctor specifically telling me do not do this— I'm going to eat it, especially if it facilitates my ingestion of French fries. I'm not going to let any of that whatever pseudoscience that you just recited to us deter me from French fries. And if you want to deprive yourself of so much happiness and convenience and deliciousness, I mean, that's your business. You make all sorts of choices for yourself uh, that I do not Mm -hmm. share. But Wyatt, quiet Wyatt. He is uh, something of a connoisseur of fast food. I think it's fair to say he's got certain spots that he likes. And in the context of French fries specifically, he singled out two categories of fries that he dislikes. And I would just say for the record, I can't think of a French fry product that I don't like. I like curly fries. I like waffle fries. I like crinkle fries, which are actually weirdly extra delicious. I don't know why. Regular French fries, the shoestring variety, sometimes the slightly healthier ones that are, you know, closer to baked or whatever. I like all of it. But, Wyatt, there are a few that you don't like, apparently, so aggressively that you actually wrote it in the group text. Which ones are you vetoing?
1: Guy, I'm not a fan of steak fries and of sweet potato fries.
2: Mm. Let's take these one at a time. What's your problem with steak fries? Honestly,
1: I really think they are gross. Like, they're just too big, and they have too much potato in it, and they're sometimes not fried properly, I feel, compared to other fries, and I just, like, literally will not eat them. They're just, I'm not a fan.
2: If they're too mushy, I know what you're talking about, then that's a little bit suspect, but just toss some salt on there, dip it in some ketchup, and everything's fine. And if they're fried up, sort of more well done. I think they're fantastic. Do you like mashed potatoes? Do you like baked potatoes? Of course, of course. But so that's so why are you that's saying different. that they have too much potato in them when you eat other forms of unadulterated potato? Because when I go to
1: get a French fry, I want a French fry. I don't want an oversized, weirdly mm. shaped fry. I want a, a, mm. a proper French fry, or at least like a waffle fry or something.
2: Okay, well, I'm going to... Mostly disagree with that one. And then what's your problem with sweet potato fries, especially? They're not my go-to, but from time to time, some sweet potato fries, ooh, maybe some ranch dressing to dip them in instead of ketchup. What's your issue there? I'm just, again, not
1: a fan. I've I've tried them, so I can say I don't like them. I know I'm I'm pinned as the picky eater, but I've tried them. I just don't. They just don 't do it for me like i it 's like I would maybe have one, and i 've had some before i 'm not like totally grossed out where i won 't eat them if it 's in front of me, I might have them, but they 're not like it 's not something i 'm actively going to go get because I just don 't think they 're very good
2: okay, Dan, do you have anything to add
0: i don 't know what 's up with Wyatt and his wild takes about fried <laughs> potato products, but that is crazy to me. I would take anything any kind of fry. But one top of my list is curly fries. I love them. There's nothing better than a basket of curly fries with like a sandwich at a restaurant. that' have been some honey mustard and just crinkle fries. Like get the frozen yes. bag of crinkle fries. Crinkle you know, fries are yeah, great. Absolutely. So just I will, the way I will they take look any of them.
2: And they feel and they taste. So ketchup is obviously the correct condiment for fries <laughs> of all varieties. Just to say that, big ketchup fan. But from time to time, certain fries lend themselves to. I mentioned ranch. There's also aioli, which is just like fancy word for mayo, basically. Is there anything else that I'm missing here of what people put on their fries? I know some people put like vinegar, I think, on French fries. I've seen some people with mustard, which I think is an absolute hard no for me. Does anyone want to jump in with a condiment comment briefly before we go?
0: Some people do cheese, like a little thing of melted cheese, like you would dip and in like a pretzel. Yeah, but you sure. dip it in. Yeah, of course. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not against that. It's That's really gilding the lily. That's very much over the top. That's when you're sort of like loosening the belt. You're like, what are calories? <laughs> You'll occasionally do a cheese fry, but that's, I can't do that very often at all. Christine, last word, anything?
8: I, I love to dip a good fry in ranch dressing, but again, it has seed oil. So now I got to find a clean version of ranch dressing. My life is. You know, a little topsy-turvy right now. I'll get back to you.
2: Right now? Okay. we got to <laughs> run. Friday is on the horizon. We'll have the Friday edition here of The Guy Benson Show. Rumors are we'll have Fridays with Kat. Cat Timp should be back tomorrow, I think. Fingers crossed. We'll fill you in when we come on the air tomorrow. Same time, same place. Have a great night. It's The Guy Benson Show.
5: The
0: power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.